0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone. Robin here. We've been having issues with the feed of the podcast, so if the last thing you heard was episode 47, a brief respite, just before the Arab invasions, then you've missed an episode. Sorry about that. The issue should be sorted out soon... And the episode is available at thehistoryofbyzantium.com, and it may be that your feed has now corrected and you're getting episode 49, (laughs) so go back and listen to number 48. Um, You may need to resubscribe to the podcast on whatever device you use. I know this is all a pain, um, but it should be over soon. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the history of Byzantium, episode 49 The Man Who Lived Too Long. The Battle of Yarmouk destroyed the Roman ability to defend Palestine and Syria. With Heraclius now back next to the Bosphorus, events moved quickly in the two areas of the empire adjacent to the Levant. In 638, as the conquering Arabs took control of northern Syria, the man put in charge of Roman Mesopotamia was feeling extremely vulnerable. The governor, John Curtius, seeing the Muslim forces gathering on his doorstep, disobeyed the emperor's orders and agreed to pay the Arabs £1,300 of gold a year not to cross the Euphrates River. News also reached Heraclius that the governor of Egypt, who was also the patriarch, if you remember, Cyrus, or Kiros, as he was more likely to be known, had done the same. The emperor was deeply unhappy with this situation, as he needed all the revenue the empire could muster to keep armies in the field. Around this time, we hear of more seizures of church gold and silver, including a raid on the pope's palace in Rome. And this influx of wealth would surely only encourage the Arabs into more conquest. The following year, 639, the emperor was proven correct. When neither Byzantine governor kept up the payments, the Muslims marched in. In Mesopotamia, Heraclius had actually fired John and replaced him with another general, Ptolemaeus. But it was a pointless reshuffling. The Roman province bordered both Syria and now Arab-controlled Iraq, so there was no way the Muslims weren't going to appear in force. The Mesopotamian defences proved easy to overrun, the garrisons stayed locked up in their cities, but the Arabs were proficient enough in siege warfare to have the province in their pockets within a year. Edessa and Amida surrendered after being invested, while the garrison of Dara put up only enough resistance to be stormed a few months later. Heraclius presumably hoped that resolute citizens would resist each siege, stunting the Arab advance and buying much-needed time for the armies to regroup in Anatolia. But as we discussed last episode, the will to resist sieges just wasn't a feature of life in the Byzantine East, and news of the Yarmouk made it clear that imperial aid would not be coming soon. Down in Egypt, the situation was more complicated. Remnants of the Palestinian garrison troops, and possibly even members of the Army of the East, had trickled into Alexandria over the past year, and Heraclius dispatched at least part of one of the praecental armies to join them. The invasion of Egypt was led by Amir ibn al-As, who met little resistance in the coastal towns as he approached the Nile. One exception was Pelusium, site of the first appearance of Yersinia pestis, but the town was taken and the invaders marched on. The situation in Alexandria was very tense. Still suffering from another outbreak of plague, the local community was fervently Monophysite and very unhappy to have a Chalcedonian patriarch and governor persecuting them and an imperial army sucking up all the food. The Roman army there gathered at Babylon, a fortified city on the Nile, not that far from modern Cairo. If the Romans could hold the line of the Nile, it would offer them a natural defensive barrier. The Arabs attacked the city but made little headway, although the precental commander John was killed in the fighting. Amir appealed to the Caliph Omar to send him reinforcements. They arrived the following summer, perhaps giving each side about 15,000 men. Amir attacked towns nearby and the Byzantines came out of Babylon to fight them the imperial troops again were hoping to break these Arabs and disperse them back to where they'd come. But instead it was the imperial army who were beaten and routed, retreating back to the city. Heraclius received news of the situation and sent another contingent of troops, likely from the remnants of the army of Thrace, under the general Marianus. Again the Romans headed out of Babylon to try and break the Arabs in open battle, Again, they were defeated, routed, and fled back to the city. The Arab armies were clearly better led and better motivated at this time, but we should remember that the troops being shipped in had no experience of fighting in Egypt and probably no experience of fighting Arabs en masse like this. However, this latest defeat left the Romans too weak to have hope in open battle again, so they abandoned Babylon which the Muslims captured just before the end of the year. Back in Alexandria, with panic and suspicion spreading, Kiros opened negotiations with Amir. The offer was made that the Byzantines would pay the Muslims £2,600 of gold per year if they would call a truce. Now that he was disobeying direct orders from Heraclius, Kiros took a boat back to Constantinople to submit this deal to the emperor in person. Predictably, the emperor angrily refused to accept the terms and had Kiros removed from his post as governor. As he had done earlier in his career with Priscos and his own brother Theodore, the emperor was keen to have these defeated leaders publicly shamed for their loss so that blame could be diverted from his own record. Kiros was probably unfairly blamed for the situation in Egypt, his argument had some merit, that Egypt was a rich place, and if tax revenue could have been used to buy off the Muslim armies, then perhaps they would have left the province in peace. There was also much derision at the rumor that Kiros had offered Amir the emperor's daughter in marriage as part of the negotiations. Again, though, Kiros seems to have come up with the idea that perhaps an imperial marriage along with the proviso that Amir be baptised as a Christian, could bring these threatening Arabs into the Roman world. Given the value of Egypt, this was hardly a terrible, if certainly impertinent, suggestion. Of course, the patriarch didn't know that Amir's new faith and new brethren would have stood guard against temptations such as these. Back in Egypt, Marianus was now killed in further fighting as Amir made slow progress toward Alexandria. Roman control of Egypt hung on by a thread. Back in the Hieria palace, an ill and depressed Heraclius was forced to swallow one piece of bad news after another. Even before the Yarmouk, his religious policy of monoenergism had begun to crumble. It was the brand new patriarch of Jerusalem, Sophronius, who threw the first stone. We actually know what he said in his Christmas sermon of 634, while the Muslims were roaming about the countryside. Reflecting the Byzantine confusion about what these new invaders represented, the patriarch makes reference to their terrible raids, but clearly doesn't think they are the terminal threat they will end up being. Because he then dedicates the vast majority of his sermon to lambasting monoenergism, as simply monophysitism by other means. Sophronius wrote to the so far neutral Pope Honorius, asking for advice. And forced to give an opinion, the Pope agreed that he did not approve of the claims about Jesus having two energies. And suddenly, the emperor's coalition of compromise had collapsed. Over the next few years, as events in the Levant spiralled out of control, Heraclius looked to Pope Honorius for guidance on a new formulation that could salvage church unity at a time when it was more desperately needed than ever. So in 638, as Mesopotamia and Egypt were invaded, the emperor and the patriarch Sergius issued a statement of faith known as the Ecthesis, or the Exposition, which seems very appropriate. This statement reconfirmed the position of Chalcedon, i.e. that Jesus had two natures. It forbid further discussion of how many energies he had, but stated that he possessed one will. I know this seems like nitpicking of the highest order, but it's actually a very important reflection of the priorities that these people had. If God helped direct human affairs, and these Persian and Arab occupations were the result of Christian disunity— then it was more important than ever to find common ground. This new formulation would become known as monotheletism. But don't worry, I'll remind you all about it when it comes up again. To add to his misery, soon after his return to the capital, Heraclius discovered the first coup plot against his reign. Led by an Armenian general, the plan was to kill the emperor and put his illegitimate son Athalaric on the throne. We know very little about Athalaric, but I assume he was conceived before Heraclius's first marriage, and so would have been the eldest of his children. Before the plot could get going, though, someone blew the whistle, and the conspirators were arrested and exiled. The emperor refused to have his son killed, but had his nose and hands cut off. This is the first instance I've come across of this kind of imperial clemency. I suppose it was considered more Christian to mutilate someone rather than murder them. We also hear strange stories about Heraclius developing a fear of the sea and needing careful coaxing by his legitimate sons to get him to return to Constantinople itself. He was clearly suffering psychologically before his final days, and may have lent more heavily than ever on Martina for support. The emperor was determined not to let his wife suffer once he was gone. His first legitimate son, Constantine the Third, was of course not Martina's, and might not look too kindly on her meddling once his father passed away. She did not help the situation by pushing hard for the interests of her son, Heraclonus. So Heraclius not only raised young Heraclonus to the status of co-Augustus with Constantine, but stipulated that once he was gone, they should be co-rulers. He also put in his will the order that Martina should be honoured by them both as their mother and the empress. He also set funds aside to look after his wife in case Constantine tried to deprive her of her privileges. He left this money with the new patriarch Pyrrhus, Sergius having died in late 638. At a time when the empire needed one strong ruler, who could perhaps even take the field against the Arabs, this succession plan was far from ideal. However, Heraclius had spent a lifetime keeping men who weren't related to him at arm's length, lest they try to seize the throne and now he was left with two young men who'd spent their lives in the palace to bequeath the empire to. I suppose he hoped that two heads might be better than one, but as you know, it's rare in Roman history that this axiom proved fruitful. Heraclius was finally put out of his misery in February 641. He was about 66 years old when he died, and had ruled the empire for just over 30 Epoch changing years. It's interesting that George of Pisidia, the poet who had exalted the emperor so thoroughly during the campaigns against Persia, ended up writing a far more sober poem about the instability of life nearer the time of the emperor's death. It was certainly not meant to be aimed at Heraclius, but it may have been influenced by seeing the collapse of his hard work, and an extract from it seems a fitting epitaph. Suddenly fades the splendour that surrounds, and all the unstable vanity of human glory stretches out and again constricts like an evil lowly serpent with its contortions. In his book The Inheritance of Rome, Chris Wickham comments that Heraclius has had a curiously good press ever since he died, despite the fact that during his reign, the empire lost two-thirds of its land and three-quarters of its wealth. I know Egypt hasn't actually fallen yet, but uh, yeah, it's going that way. I don't want to repeat myself, but hopefully over the course of the podcast I've made my case that decisions made by each emperor from Justinian onwards weakened the eastern frontier and made the Persian breakthrough a possibility. Heraclius' decision to launch a civil war while the army of the east was directly engaged with the Sassanids contributed to this. The fall of those Mesopotamian fortress cities like Edessa and Amida basically set Khosrow up for the invasions which would follow. Who can say what would have happened if Phocas had been left in charge? Having contributed to the disaster, Heraclius played the highest stakes game of geopolitical poker imaginable and won. The Sassanids were not destroyed, but they were weakened enough to swap what they'd taken for peace. It was a fabulous achievement, and one which the emperor clearly gave every drop of energy he had to achieve. Beyond that, I don't see how we can fault him for the yarmuk. In all of imperial experience, Arab raiders had never stood up to the field armies. Once they did and crushed the army of the east, the emperor's choices were severely limited. It's possible that if he'd mustered every man under arms in Anatolia and marched back to Antioch, he could have broken the Muslims in another battle. It's possible. The Arab armies were not overwhelmingly large. But to do so would risk it all. There would be nothing left behind him. It's likely that Heraclius' experience in the Great War with the Sasanids had convinced him that his men did not have the morale to pull that off. Remember, he had led armies back to Antioch to try and snuff out Shavaraz and failed around 612. He'd spent years then building his men's discipline and courage back up before risking them in a final war. We'll never know, of course, what would have been the best decision for the empire, and historian Warren Treadgold sums it up best for me when he says... Even hindsight is insufficient to determine whether Heraclius' measured response to the Arab invasion was a major mistake, a minor mistake, or no mistake at all. It was, in any case, the decision of an informed, experienced, and intelligent strategist. Heraclius' opposite number, Yazdegard III, did risk quite a lot more in his defence of Persian Mesopotamia and ended up dying as a fugitive as the Arabs overran both Iraq and Iran. Iran that lay beyond the Zagros Mountains, just as Anatolia lay behind the Tauruses. At least, on an oversimplified comparison, the Roman state survived, and Heraclius must take some credit for that. While reading about Heraclius, an interesting thing has come up time and again. We know so little about the Emperor's own personality, considering how long he reigned, that successive historians have pasted on to him their own interpretation of what his reign meant and what he was like before the losses to the Arabs. George of Pisidia was already trying to paint him as the new Constantine, refounding the Roman East on a surer footing while later Byzantine writers would try to absolve him from blame for the Yarmouk by claiming his subordinates disobeyed his wise instructions. While the first historians of our modern era, like Gibbon or J.B. Berry, suggest that Heraclius was the first crusader, claiming that the way he united his army using Christian propaganda during the war with the Zoroastrian Persians laid the groundwork for later religious wars between the Cross and the Crescent a connection I don't think really exists. The 20th century historian George Ostogorsky would end up giving credit to Heraclius for the design of the theme system, that network of defences which would take hold in Anatolia over the next few centuries, something again which modern historians have shown developed slowly over time. In the most recent biography by Walter Kagey, The historian asks whether or not the emperor was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder after the war with the Sasanids. Could this explain some of his behaviour and decision-making when the Arabs arrived? Islamic historians like Al-Tabari, writing centuries later, pass on the stories of Muhammad writing to Heraclius while he was reorganising the eastern provinces. Heraclius recognises the truth of Islam, just from reading the letter, and even tells his subordinates that they should all convert. He only relents when they object strongly, and then claims that he was just testing their Christian faith. Come on, I was only kidding. A simplified explanation for this tale is the Muslim need to explain the continued existence of the Roman Empire centuries after the initial conquests. If their emperor had briefly seen the light, then perhaps God was sparing them for a later conversion. I give you all of this just to say that the emperor left something of a blank canvas onto which future generations have repeatedly tried to fill in the man they wish to see, or that they think they can see. My only addition to this discussion is that I can detect only one period during Heraclius's recorded life when he was able to make decisions entirely proactively He was always reacting, first to Focus, then to Khusro, and finally to the Arabs. Only in that short five-year interval after the Great War did he have the freedom to make his own policy. And what did he do in that time? He promulgated monoenergism. His number one non-reactive concern was that the Roman people all worshipped as one, which is the same concern that all of his predecessors since Justinian shared. So perhaps the emperor just was a man of his age and did his best with the circumstances he was given. And the best he could give was very impressive, and as such, he should be remembered as a great emperor. But as multiple historians have pointed out, he lived too long to enjoy an unblemished reputation. If he had died in his bed before the yarmouk, then there would be no doubt about his legacy. As it is, we will forever wonder what he was really like and whether he could have done more to prevent the collapse of the Roman East. We are a long way off the end of the century, but I'm going to encourage you to send in any questions you have about the 7th century from now on. I think it will help guide my research and I don't want anyone to miss the deadline or forget anything they were curious about. So go ahead and ask either at thehistoryofbyzantium.com, on Facebook, Twitter, or email thehistoryofbyzantium at gmail.com. And just a reminder that if you're interested in a mapping or geographic data service, then check out Leatherman Data Services and see what they could do for you at ldshmaps.org.